Well, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. If you expect me to be as eloquent as Gabe's prayer just was there, lower your expectations. I, I'm just a, a poor boy from the Valley of Virginia, really more so the Appalachian Mountains, so don't expect a ton. Uh, Parents, uh, if you have elementary school age kids, uh, now would be a great time to dismiss them. If you just want to send them back to the back doors, uh, our Alathea Junior teachers will uh, take them for uh, kids' time. Uh, we'll be glad to serve you and your family in that way and have a great time uh, with the kids. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn over to Judges chapter 2. Um, if y- You may have noticed uh, last week when you were here that we had scripture journals out on the, uh, out on the seats. We didn't do that this week, but uh, if you would like a scripture journal, Journal. That's our free gift to you. Just raise your hand. We're going to have some people around here that would hand one out to you. Uh, free gift, nothing involved other than it just has the Bible uh, with the, the book of Judges in it on one side and then a blank page is on the other side. We just want you to have that with you. We just ask that if you come back, you would bring it with you. Uh, we're going to study the entire book of Judges together as a church. And so we really believe that God will use our time in this book to uh, help really lead us to a greater worship of him. And so just keep your hand up and we'd love to give one of those to you. Um, Just a reminder to you guys, every week uh, we will actually uh, be posting ahead of time the the scripture that we're going to be covering. Uh, Because Judges is such a large book, we're going to be covering large swaths of scripture. And even this morning, what Gabe read for us will not be the entire uh, section of scripture that I'm going to be covering in in, in my sermon. But we want you guys to come prepared, ready, and understanding kind of maybe the context of what we're reading. And so uh, if, if you have time throughout the week, I would encourage you to take, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes and just allow yourself to read the scripture that we'll be covering each and every Sunday morning and then have some time to reflect and meditate on it before you arrive. So uh, we are in week two of this study. And I want to give you guys just a brief recap of what we talked about uh, last week uh, so that you just have an idea of maybe some assumptions we're carrying into our time in this book together. Uh, I said last week that there were going to be some themes that we would consistently see inside of the book of Judges as we studied it together. And those would be, you know, the following, that the the first one would be is that Israel will not obey God and rebel consistently. That's going to be a theme we see over and over again. You saw it in what Gabe read to us. And so just file that in a way in the back of your mind is that there's this consistent pattern of, of God's commands being transgressed by Israel and kind of what the consequences of that are for them. Uh, what else we're going to see? We're going to see that God's going to be faithful to Israel consistently. Now, that faithfulness is not always going to be something that Israel likes or enjoys, but God is going to be faithful to them time and time again and faithful to his promises to them. And then the last thing I said that we would see is that, that God's going to use godly men and women as leaders for Israel in the midst of their rebellious nature. And so last week, what we saw is the kind of the way that this book starts out is it's the transition period from as Israel enters into the land of Canaan with Joshua as their leader, we're seeing a transition period where Joshua has passed away. And if you know anything about the nation of Israel, anytime a major religious or military or political leader dies, there, there is a crying out and a groaning of the people of, what now? 
What, what do we do now? Now that this really, really important leader, person that we have followed has passed away, what do we do now? We're, we're hopeless without Joshua is kind of where the Israelites are standing. And God meets Israel in the midst of Joshua's death to say, hey, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you constantly. I'm going to empower you as a people to do all the things I've called you to do. And in that, I will deliver you from your enemies. And so he makes this promise of faithfulness to them in the midst of their rebellion. And yet, right, Israel fails to do what God asked them to do after he had said, I'll be with you and help you do it. That's what we saw. We saw that they were called to take the land as they had been commanded, and they refused to do so. And so, especially the northern tribes of Israel, there's about five or six of them that did not do what God had called them to do. And because of that, the entire book of Judges is going to be centered around that failure to drive out the nations that were still in the northern part of the Holy Land. The, the Word of God says that those nations would become a snare to them. And what he, what he meant by that is that they wouldn't kill them off, that they wouldn't destroy them, but that they were going to cause suffering, frustration, and difficulty as, in their entire existence as a nation. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if someone came to you and said, hey, like, I, I've examined your life, I've been watching the way that you've lived the last several weeks, if you just do these few things you'll stop having so much self-destructive habits or tendencies or whatever else it may be, right? We would probably say, like, it would be a good idea to follow that advice, yes? Right? Yes, yet many of us, right, every year, because I, I always like to remind people of this, because whenever we read a narrative portion of the Bible, it can be really easy to look at the people or the characters that we find inside the text and think, man, those guys are really stupid. And it's like, well, yeah, they were, right? But fortunately for each and every one of us in this room this morning, our lives are not written down in the text because people generations from now would be looking back and saying like, man, Pastor Kevin was a moron. <laughs> like, did he, did he really do that? Yes. Right, so what we see, right, is God's command, right, to Israel is, is meant not to tie them up to be bondage, but it's actually meant to liberate and free them and help them to experience life joyously and abundantly. And their failure to follow God and his word is what's going to lead to their own oppression, slavery, and downfall. And the last thing we saw was that because of their failure to obey God's commands, we see this in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, we're going to see the people kind of realize the trouble they're in. Let me, let me read this text to you. When Joshua dismissed the people, so it's, Kind of what the author of Judges is doing is he's taking us back and just giving us a quick recap and snapshot of everything we've seen. He says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went out, each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Haris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. 
And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Right, so what we see is that the generation that God had led through the wilderness and led into the land knows of God's faithfulness and chooses to follow him. But they did not do the work of passing on the good news of who Yahweh was and what he had done for them. That to, to the point where the next generation does not know of God, does not know of his goodness, and fails to follow and obey him. And with that's going to come all sorts of problems for them. And God announces his judgment to them, and the people are saddened by this reality, but they do not repent and turn back to him. And so our text this morning, we're going to go all the way through chapter 2 and start into chapter 3 this morning. Our text this morning is just going to kind of point out two big things to us. And I hope we'll see these things and walk out of here encouraged by this. Right, the first thing we're going to see is the danger of not pursuing God fully. And I chose those words very, very carefully, that there comes a real danger when we choose to follow God but not follow him fully, especially as he has outlined for us in his word. The second thing we're going to see is that God is good even when we are not. So let's look at this first one, the danger of not pursuing God fully. You know, a major theme that, that we see in the life of Israel in the Old Testament is that they rarely reject God outright. They rarely say, hey, we don't, we don't believe in God. We don't know God. We don't love God. We don't have anything to do with him. Like the nation of Israel is almost never described as atheists in the text. But what they tend to do instead is they tend to choose to worship and follow the God of the Bible, but also entertain and dabble in following after other gods and idols as well. That is the consistent theme of the Israelites throughout the text. And this is what we're going to see happens in Israel pretty much immediately once they have arrived in Canaan. Because they refuse to drive out the Canaanites and the various tribes that had lived there, they immediately start to turn and run after and serve their gods on top of following and worshiping Yahweh. Look at verses 11 through 13 with me in Judges chapter 2. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So if you, if you notice there, this word is repeated twice, that word abandoned. And in the Hebrew, right, that word is the Hebrew word azav, right? And it's, a, it's root idea is, you know, where, where, where the, the word comes from is the idea of being chained to something and then having that chain broken or loosened. And so kind of what we're, we're seeing here and what God is saying to the Israelites is that they were connected to God so intensely, they were chained to him and that their very survival and existence was completely dependent on what God had done for them as a nation. And this makes sense if you understand the history of Israel. 
Right? They were enslaved to one of the biggest world superpowers in Egypt, and yet God had delivered them, then helped them survive in the desert and the wilderness for 40 years before he allowed them as a people to move into the promised land and start taking hold of what he had promised to Abraham. And so there's this idea here is that Israel was completely connected to God, and yet once they arrived in the Holy Land, they broke those chains and left him. This is the same Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's often used to describe a spouse leaving their husband or their wife. And we see immediately here that Israel's fidelity and loyalty to God is gone. Doesn't mean that they've stopped worshiping God. Doesn't mean they've stopped believing in him. But their, their loyalty to following him as he has revealed himself to them in scripture is now gone. They no longer desire God to be the only God in their lives. And what, what do they leave God for? Right? It says that they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Right? Many of us are probably no longer familiar with Canaanite gods and goddesses, so let me tell you a little bit about what is being said here. The Baals were the, the Canaanite deities, but in, in, in particular, Baal was like the, the one that was the most worshipped and revealed, revered in, in Canaan. And most of the other gods actually had names, but the other nations and tribes around Canaan would just say the Baals to refer to all of their gods. It's the same way that we might look at Greek mythology and understand like Zeus or Poseidon or whatever else, but we would just say the, the Greek gods, right? The pantheon of Greek gods. That is the term that they would use in general form. But Baal himself was the son of the chief god of the Canaanites, El. And often he was depicted as a bull or a ram. And the story of him is that he actually defeats his father in, in battle and combat and overcomes him. And because of that, he was the one that was able to oversee the sun and thunder and fertility. And is often referred to as king of the gods. And so Baal worship was really this idea of you wanted to, to worship and follow the most powerful god of your pantheon of gods so that he might give you a blessing. And this would kind of work its way out most commonly in, in sacrificing and offering to appease him and having him give you what you wanted, which included, in Canaanite worship and culture, child sacrifice, which the Lord says throughout the Old Testament was an abomination and something that should never be done. And so you have Baal, who was appeased by child sacrifice, and the other god that they were running after was the Ashtaroth. Now, this is a plural form of a bunch of female deities that existed in Canaanite worship. And they, they were goddesses of fertility, goddesses of love, goddesses of war. And oftentimes the way that worship of those gods worked in Canaanite culture is they would have like a temple or uh, like a cave or, or a place where you would go to worship these particular gods so that, you know, you'd be able to have children or that your marriage might be saved or whatever else. But oftentimes it included temple prostitution. And so what we see is that Israel was seeking the blessings of these various areas of their life. And instead of staying loyal to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and following after him as they were called, they started running after these Canaanite gods. 
I want you to stop and I want you just to pause and I want you to think for a minute. We get what Israel is doing, right? Or we might use a, a number of different terms for it, right? Compromising, right? Loving the world, right? whatever that might be, you know, depending on how much of a Christian background you might have, you might be able to come up with a whole list of words that would describe what Israel's doing here. But Israel's mindset from like a worldly logical perspective actually makes a lot of sense. Hey, hey, we, we've moved into this land. God has told us that he's not going to overthrow these people any longer because we didn't, we didn't drive them out when we first arrived like we were supposed to. We have to live amongst their culture and their traditions and their worship of their God. Let's just follow both gods. Let's bring the cultures together and make this happen. And here's one of the interesting things, right? We're thousands of years past historically when this happened, and especially in a country like America, right, where we're, we're told, like, hey, our country's a melting pot. It's just, like, all the cultures thrown together. I always love when someone says, like, that's so American, and I'm like, you're going to have to, like, define what you mean by that because that means so many different things to so many different people because of the way our culture and our country were formed. But when you think about the Israelites and what's happening here, what they're doing makes sense from a logical perspective to make their life easier as a nation state. And yet, they had a massive problem. God had explicitly forbid them from doing what they were doing. He said, he said very, very clearly not to do this. Turn over to Exodus chapter 20 with me. Ten commandments. Here we go, right? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Look at, look at the things that God says to Israel there, right? He says, I am the Lord your God. He's like, hey, if you're curious as to who created and made everything, it was me, right? You don't have any other, it's me. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't say some. He doesn't say you can have some gods below me. He says, you shall have how many? Zero, none. This is a non-negotiable. Right, I tell, I tell my kids, and parents are going to know this like, as I say this. Right, when I give my kids instructions, it is not debate time. Right, it's like, hey, go get your clothes on. you got to go to school. That's not time for us to have a discussion on what that should look like. It's like, no, you go get your clothes on. Okay, if I as a father have been given in the created order some semblance of sovereignty and control and leadership over my children, how much more so would the creator of the universe have over each and every one of us? Amen. And so God looks out on his people and he says, this is not open for discussion. 
The other gods of the other nations are not to be followed by you. You're not to make idols. You're not to make a likeness of anything on the earth to be worshipped. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not serve them. Because I show my steadfast love to you as you love me and keep my commandments because I am a jealous God. And that word jealousy, it's, I think, translated well, but we tend to really struggle with that word, right? Because if I said, hey, like, you're really jealous, that's usually not a positive character trait that we use to describe people. It's like, yeah, have you met my friend? He's super jealous, Want to meet him? No, like your friend sounds not very fun to be around. Jealous people tend to do weird things. But when scripture is talking about God's jealousy, it means that he's jealous because he loves them and he's for their good. He's jealous for seeing them prosper. He's jealous for seeing them made much of and then in them being made much of, them returning that glory and attention back to him to see worship of him. Because he had delivered them, he had saved them, he had been good to them. He doesn't want them to run to things that are going to hurt them. God actually calls their work evil. A.K.A. not good. It's like, yeah, yeah, the things you guys do, they're evil. And so what we see here is God is abundantly clear to the people of Israel. It's one of the reasons why he gets so angry once Moses comes down from the mountain and they're already worshiping a golden calf. It's like, guys, you've got to be kidding me. I literally just parted a sea for you to walk through and then swallowed up the army of the Egyptians. And this is what you're doing. You're already panicking. So God is abundantly clear. Do not worship anything but me. And yet, right, think about it. I mean, even a few chapters later in Exodus 23, right, we, we saw this verse last week. Let me read it to you. He's, Moses is, is, is relaying the information about the conquest of the Holy Land to him. And look at what he says. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and the Perizzites and to the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Okay, so just in case you didn't get the Ten Commandments, God says, hey, let me, let me just make it really, really clear and spell it out for you. As I give you the Holy Land and you move into it, drive them out and do not worship their gods. Do not do this. And yet, what do they do? I mean, one generation, guys, one, is what we see there in Judges chapter 2. One generation. And the real danger behind this is not just the fact that God had commanded them and they transgressed it, which obviously is the most important thing. But this compromise led to oppression, led to war, led to strife, led to slavery, led to the loss of joy of God's people when he had led them into the very place of joy that he had promised them. And church, you know, we're charged with that same command. You know, the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions for us. 
know, when God, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, that, that applies to us, right? If you are here this morning and you are a professing follower of Jesus, th- that is for you. Right? God's saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, you know, it's real easy here in like the, the historical context for us to sit here and say, well, you know, I don't worship Baal. I haven't been to the Ashtaroth temple ever. Like, I, think, I think I'm good. But let's be honest, right? That doesn't mean that, that idols are not all around us. Doesn't, doesn't mean that every single one of us in here doesn't struggle with running to something that may not be labeled as a god in the sense of the way that ancient tribes and nation states describe them as gods, but doesn't mean we don't run to them. I mean, think, think, think of some of them, right? Like relationships. How many of us do things that we know God tells us not to do for the sake of harmony in a relationship? What, what are we ultimately doing there? Right, we're bowing and serving the idol of someone else, right? Fear of man allowing them to drive how we might live in opposition to what God might say. Right, work. How many of us have sacrificed our values, God's word, on the altar of success in the workplace? Leisure and entertainment. Guys, hear hear me when I say this, because I've got a rap of being a gator hater around here, and I am not. Like, I, I promise you, like, like I, I don't hate the Gators. I, 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 I like WVU. We're terrible. Like, okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, right, there was 90,000 plus people worshiping last night. Right? And, and I, guys, I love football. I love it. But how often, right, do we take things that are given to us, right, to enjoy, and we make them more than they're supposed to be? Sports. Leisure, video games, right? Idols don't have to have a name like Zeus or Poseidon or Odin. Or maybe even the biggest one currently that I think plagues us in our current season is politics. I don't care what side of the political aisle you stand on. Because we have both in this church, by the way, guys. It's the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. It's incredibly diverse. And we have one thing that unifies us that's far greater than an elephant or a donkey. And that's the blood of Christ. And yet, I've seen consistently and even been tempted to myself, right, lay down clear commands in Scripture that God gives us for our flourishing and making much of Him for the sake of a political stance that I think might be right. Because that's what idols look like in 2022. And it's not a Baal or it's not an Ashtaroth, but it doesn't mean that we are not tempted to run for them. And if we bow down to, to, to run after these things, to serve them the way that Israel did, they may even appear to provide some life or benefit or joy to us. Because I promise you, 
ultimately, just like Israel experiences in the book of Judges, they will become a snare and they will rob us of joy in our creator. And look, this, this is hard, right? I mean, like, like I get it. If, if everyone could immediately identify an idol and just throw it out, like no one would ever struggle with anything, right? right? It'd be really easy. Right? This is the, the reason why God tells his people to gather together in community and hold one another accountable and be reminded of the goodness of what God has done and re- reflect on his mercy and his grace and forgiveness towards us. But it also reminds us to take a second sometimes and honestly examine our lives. Like guys, something happened last weekend in my life that, that really, really frustrated me, and I'm not going to go into details about it, but, but here's what I'll say. I am not strong enough of a, of a man to not let my emotions and my irritation get in the way when something like that happens. And here's what I had to do. I had to immediately, and you can ask the elders of this church if, if, if I messaged them on Monday morning about this, because I did. It's like, hey, this thing happened. I can't handle it. I'm not in a good mental space. I can't be on social media this week, and you are to check in on me and make sure that I'm not. Now, I don't share that story to say like, oh, look at Pastor Kevin. He managed to stay off Twitter for a week. Good for him. Right? Like most of you guys are like, what's Twitter? Right? I say the same thing about Snapchat. I had that thing for about five seconds and could not figure it out. Right? And this was like six years ago. The students in the church were like, okay, boomer. Like, you know, move on. Right? Okay, here we are. Right? But I share that to say like, hey, it was, it was God's mercy to me. And the same call that he gives us is like, if we, if we notice we have a tendency to run to things that are going to pull our affections away from Christ, get rid of them. Drive them out. Because I know what would have happened to me if I hadn't done that, guys. I would have read people's opinions. I would have read, I would have read all these different things. And I would have gotten more and more angry. And I would start getting mad at invisible people that I didn't even know existed. Right? And then I'm going to come home and I'm going to have these arguments with my wife about these things. And she's like, I don't even care. What, like, like, leave me alone. Please get off Twitter. Right? Because the danger of not pursuing God fully is that you end up robbing yourself of joy that you think you're going to find in something else. And so here, here inevitably comes the question, right? Like Israel's in this state, right? Oftentimes, even as disciples of Jesus, we might find ourselves in the same place. What, what do we do with this? Like what, what is the call of God on our life if this is the case? Because it's easy to say, hey, idols, they're bad. Don't chase them, right? That's, like that's the low-hanging fruit, right? It's another thing to actually put them away and to not serve them. So how can we practically do this, knowing that God is better than our idols? And here's what I'll submit to you and what I think God attempts to do with Israel time and time again in the book of Judges. He tries to remind them of his goodness and his love towards them so that they might know that and see it as better than the things that they run after to try to replace him. This is why the church, 
over thousands of years has chosen to gather together consistently because they need to be reminded, hey, God is really good. Because when we leave here this morning, all of us in this room are dealing with something that, that could be really tough and, and causes us to question, hey, is God really good? And God brings us back every week to look upon his word, to be around his people, to receive encouragement so that we might be reminded, hey, God actually is good even though what's going on around us isn't. God really does do these things. And, and what we see as we look at this is God calls Israel to be reminded of who he is and what he's done for them is that he is better than the idols they're running to and that he is good even when they choose not to follow him. Because God is good even when we are not. And there's three things that God shows here just in this brief kind of section of Judges chapter 2 that show us his goodness. We see it in God's anger, and that's going to be a lot of fun to explain. We see it in God's patience, and we see it in God's deliverance. Right? Look at verses 14 and 15 with me in Judges chapter 2. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So think back earlier to what God had said back in Exodus 20. Right When he had given them the Ten Commandments, he had said, right, hey, I'm jealous for you and my love is steadfast for you. So this is how God describes his posture towards his people, towards Israel, and now for us, the church. Like, like think about this for a minute. God is jealous for you. So much so that he displayed that in the fact that he gave his only son for you. And I mentioned this last week, but I'll reiterate it. God's anger is actually rooted in his love and jealousy for his people. Because he's for their good and for their flourishing. And I actually think we can relate with this, right? Because if I said like, hey, like that person's angry, we would be like, oh man, look, he's got an anger problem. What's going on? Right? But there are instances of good and righteous anger. For example, right, my, my father, right, his high school, his childhood friend all the way up through college and post-college, right, was a struggling alcoholic. Struggled his entire life with it. From the time I was born to like when I can first remember him, like he always battled on and off being sober and then falling back into alcohol abuse and addiction. And it left a trail of disaster behind him. I mean, broken marriages, kid issues, financial ruin. I mean, like, just you name it, this guy walked through it. To the point, like, where even at one point in time after my sister and I had gone off to college, he actually moved in with my parents and was living in their basement. And I would, you know, my dad, like, was so interesting in how he would deal with his friend. Because I would see my dad and... He loved him so much, but he would get so angry with him. 
And like, I couldn't understand it. Like I would hear him in the basement. I'd hear my dad like arguing with him and yelling at him and be like, you cannot do this, you know, taking his car from him or, or whatever else it may be. And I, I, I came to realize he didn't hate his friend. He was angry at him because he loved him and he hated him see over and over again this pattern of self-inflicted self-destruction in his life again and again and it broke his heart. I would even go so far as to say my dad might have loved him more than he loved himself. And he hated it. Because this, this is the type of anger that is being described in the book of Judges about God towards us. It's not rooted in some sort of hatred or like pettiness. Like, guys, God is not petty. He could snap his finger Thanos style and we're all gone. Immediately. And God's not like, oh man, they won't listen to me. What do I do? Like, go read Genesis, right? He can cause a flood and just get rid of everyone. Like, he's, he doesn't need us. He's, he, he's not beholden to us. And yet, because he loves his creation, he's jealous for them. Because God knows that what we need more than anything is him. That's how he designed us. Not because he hates us, because he knows what will cause flourishing in our lives. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. Right? He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. If you guys don't know what petrol is, that's gasoline. He's a Brit. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is no, just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. God is saying to Israel, look, you can't experience true joy, freedom, and happiness apart from me. And he says the same thing to us because God's anger is rooted in his love for his people knowing him and experiencing him and flourishing underneath his commands. And sometimes this takes the form of discipline because his discipline is designed to bring those of us who call him father back to him because we need him not to drive us away. Right? You'll notice that every time God uses one of the other nations in the Holy Land to oppress the people, guess what they do? They cry out to God to help them and guess what God does? He comes back. The same way that as a father, when I tell my kids, don't do that, that's bad, and then they do it, and the results are bad, guess who they run to for help? Me or their mother. Right. Because they look to what they know will actually help. And so we see God's anger actually being an example of God being good towards Israel. 
being for their good and their flourishing. We also see God's patience. And we will see this throughout this entire book as we study it together. God is patient and compassionate with Israel. It's going to be a theme throughout all of Scripture, as a matter of fact. I mean, if you go back to Numbers chapter 14, right, look at what Moses says. And now please, and he's talking to the Lord after Israel has rebelled once again. He says, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. See, Moses is interceding for them there, and he's appealing to God, not on the basis of the performance of Israel, but based on what? God's character. God, you've promised that you're good, and that you're loving, and you're forgiving, and you are merciful. Uh, I appeal to you on behalf of your own character. I know that you are a patient God. Please forgive and pardon them. And this is what God's going to do with them time and time again throughout the book of Judges. It's what God still does even with us today, right? Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 2 when he just got done telling everyone reading that letter, hey, look, like the whole world is without excuse. We know God exists. Whether you want to argue it or not, you can, but God has given enough to the human race to know. And this is what he says in verse 4. Or do you presume, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? He says, hey, God is patient and long-suffering with sinners, not because he can't do anything, but because he desires to see repentance from his people. God is not impotent. He's patient. He waits for his people to come back to them. God is patient with Israel to lead them to repentance. And God is patient with us. Merciful and compassionate. So that we might go to him. This means if you're stuck in sin or refusing to believe, God is patiently long-suffering for you to return to him and to stop trusting in other things. And so we see God's goodness in his anger. We see it in his patience. And lastly, we see it in his deliverance. Look at verse 16 of Judges chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And these these couple of verses here are actually a, a summary of the entire book of Judges. Right? A rebellious people run after false gods. God's anger is kindled and allows them to be disciplined by the nations around them. He gives them over to plunderers and distress and oppression. God's people cry out. God delivers them through a judge. You see, the idols that Israel ran after delivered Israel into suffering and misery. God delivers them from the suffering and misery. God sends judges to deliver Israel from their misery because God pities them. He wants to free them from oppression. And here's the reality. God does the same for us and so much more. As we finish up looking at this this morning, I want to go ahead and invite the band back up.
And as they're getting ready, I want you to think about this. Just like Israel, everyone in this room at some point in time, or, or maybe even right now, has ignored God and gone their own way. It's the reality of being human. We run after idols. Right, Romans 1 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See what Paul's saying there? He's like, look, every human being has run after the creation rather than the creator. That's what we do. Money was created, we run after it. Sex was created, we run after it. Humans and celebrities were created, we run after it, instead of the creator of it all. And God declares that he is greater than our idols and our sin. That he is good. And if you leave with nothing else this morning, I want you to leave knowing this. The same goodness that you see from God in Judges chapter 2 is the same God that is for us as his people today. See, God's anger was fully satisfied in the work of Jesus Christ. Right, his wrath and justice and love all culminated in that moment where Jesus took upon himself your sin and mine. Where God both justly punished our rebellion and yet loved and forgave and delivered us. Right, God's patience is being declared to you even this morning. Right, as God has allowed you another day to come by repentance and faith to him. Each and every day is an opportunity for a Christian to run to him in repentance and faith. And if you are here this morning and not a follower of Jesus, you can as well. And lastly, God's deliverance. Right, the hope of the Christian is this in Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's what he's saying. God's already delivered the Christian once. Your sin is taken care of past, present, and future. But one day he will deliver us into his presence, into the arms of the Father. That's what awaits us. Because the same love he had for Israel 
is the love he has for you. A love that ultimately cost the life of his son. Because church, hear me when I say this. Jesus is better than our idols. God is better than your idol. It may not feel like it, may not seem like it. I promise you that it is. His love is better. So here's what we're going to do. We've got the elements for communion. Everyone on each one of these tables, some in the back. Right? If you're gluten-free, we even have a gluten-free option for you. Right? Here's what I want you to do. Right? We're going to turn the lights down. The band's going to play some instrumental. We're going to go in, into this time together. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take a moment and I want you to ask God if there's something in your life you need delivered from that you would ask him to deliver you from it. Maybe it's a toxic relationship. Maybe it's a love of money. Whatever the idols that you run after are, will you take them to him this morning? God's promise is that he delivers us time and time again. Ask him to deliver you. Because I believe he will. And then I want you to take communion. And communion is for anyone here this morning that has trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and has been baptized into him. You can take communion, and then once you're done taking communion, you can sit there and pray, reflect, do whatever you need to do, or you can stand up and you can sing and worship King Jesus because that's what we're going to do. You know, we try to do one thing here well each and every week, and that's make much of our King Jesus. So we were like, hey, the pastor, like, he's not well-spoken, and he's not a good communicator. Okay, was Jesus elevated? Success. Oh, the technology was bad, and the sound was off. Was Jesus elevated? Success. Well, we didn't have enough seats, so there wasn't enough parking. Was Jesus elevated? Success. Because we gather here this morning, not about us, but for him. And so let's take some time quietly to meditate, to pray, to thank him, and then let's sing. And I don't care if you can't hold a tune. I can't. Let's just sing to him because he is good, he is patient, and he has delivered. Let's pray.